This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for Thursday, April 21st, 2022. This week's Intego Mac Podcast security headlines include fake reviews are the target of a British law that would fine commerce sites for posting them. Can it be enforced? Netflix lays part of the blame for a large subscriber loss on account sharing, and they plan to crack down accordingly. But account sharing can't be the only factor. We'll discuss, and we'll take a look at how you can get your older, unsupported Mac hardware to run the latest Mac OS. It's a project you might be interested in to extend the usefulness of that old Mac. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast: veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm doing just fine. How many weeks has it been, Josh? Oh, it has been three weeks without any security updates for macOS Big Sur or Catalina to address two known in the wild vulnerabilities. Two known in the wild vulnerabilities that are actively exploited, that are dangerous. It's like something's bleeding and they're not putting a bandage around the wound and it's going to bleed out eventually and then... It'll be too late. It's interesting to see Apple doing this, right? Now, they do have macOS Big Sur 11.6.6 in beta right now. This I think they released the second release candidate earlier this week, I think on Tuesday, if I'm not mistaken. So they are planning to release another version soon, which we assume is going to fix one or hopefully both of these vulnerabilities. And then Catalina hopefully will also get a patch if it's affected by the the second one, the Intel driver vulnerability. I'll put a link in the show notes to an episode three weeks ago when we first talked about this so people can find out what exactly is going on. We want to talk today about Netflix. And for some reason, before we start these episodes, when we're preparing them, we end up often talking about TV shows and movies and stuff. And then our producer, Doug, is like, OK, come on, let's get to work here. And so we were talking about Netflix today because Netflix shares have fallen more than 35 percent after the company has lost over 200,000 subscribers. Now, Josh, you were saying that you have a subscription for Netflix and you don't watch it that much. Me, I've started canceling my Netflix subscription if there's nothing interesting. And then when something good comes on, I'll re-up it for a month. And right now, we're one day after the new Better Call Saul has just started. So I will keep it going until that's over, which actually they're going to get three months out of me for that. That's really terrible. But a lot of people are unsubscribing because there's not enough good content. And I agree. I mean, personally... If I had young kids, they would always be watching. But for me, it's not that good. One of the problems that Netflix seems to be planning to crack down on is the fact that people share their accounts. So you may have a family member with whom you share your account because what's the rules? On the on the HD version, you can watch on two screens. On the 4K version, you can watch on four screens at a time. So you could have two households sharing a 4K Netflix account. And apparently they're going to crack down on this, which wouldn't be that difficult to do because it's it's kind of cheating in a way, but they've always allowed it, right? I wonder how difficult it will be for them to do because there's typically two IP addresses that are being used to sign into the accounts, right? If they're, If that's how they're determining it, it could very well be one family where you have somebody who's watching Netflix on their lunch break at work, which is going to have a different IP address than 
the spouse who's at home watching a different show. So, you know, if you're paying for a plan where you can have multiple simultaneous streams, uh, it, it could very well be the same family who's watching from two different locations. So I don't know exactly how Netflix is really going to make that determination. I would think they're going to do it on a per device basis. They get your Mac address of your device. If I'm listening to Apple Music, I just have a single plan for Apple Music. If I'm listening on my iMac and I put on Apple Music on one of my home pods, it's going to tell me you can't listen to it. You need a family plan or something. So they know immediately how many and which devices are using it. So I think that would be actually kind of trivial for Netflix. I think one of the problems, now again, I don't do this, but I've heard about people who've been sharing a Netflix subscription for years from friends who they're no longer in touch with or ex-partners, et cetera, et cetera. All they would have to do is just make everyone sign in again every three months or something to ensure that they're using a valid subscription. You're still probably going to be able to share a little bit, but Netflix is going to have to do something I mean, when you think about it, it's kind of cheating, right? I said that before. It's not really that fair. But if you are paying for four screens, why not those four screens, one of them be your parents, for example? It's definitely something that I think a lot of people who are users of the service feel is a gray area where Netflix wants to crack down on that because they want the revenue, obviously. So... Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens here. I mean, Netflix con continues to increase their prices, which is going to make people reevaluate. Do I really want Netflix? Do I really want to continue paying for this? You know, they're increasing the prices. There's a lot of streaming services out there that also have good content. Many people are subscribed to multiple services besides Netflix these days. And so a lot of people are kind of going, eh, maybe I don't need Netflix. And I think that's really what is the biggest problem for Netflix right now, a lot more than people sharing accounts. Okay, just to bring this back to privacy and security, which are the main topics of this podcast, one of the reasons we wanted to discuss this is if you share your Netflix account with someone, you're sharing your username and password. You don't have in, well, you can set up individual profiles. You can't set up individual accounts, right? One account, one username and password. So it's really important that this is not a pair of username and password that you're using anywhere else because for all the reasons that friend X friend, ex-spouse, whatever, might try to log into other services using it, or if someone gets their device and gets into their passwords, or if they've written it down on a piece of paper or something like that. So that means that you could have a, a username-password pair that could be vulnerable, so it has to be unique. It's really important. Exactly. Yeah. Good reminder. Always have separate passwords for every site and service that you use. Okay. Interesting Apple iCloud exploit and some crypto trader lost more than $650,000. One second, says CNET. He gave who he thought was Apple a one-time Apple ID code. The next, his crypto was gone. We'll link to this CNET article. I don't feel bad that the Mutant Ape Yacht Club NFT was stolen from his wallet that was worth about $80,000. But for the rest of it, this is actually a pretty interesting... I guess we'd call this social engineering, right? Yeah, this is exactly an example of social engineering. So the attack scenario as described by, I presume, somebody who's into NFTs. They talked about the attack scenario on Twitter, and they gave like a list of the four steps that an attacker will use to try to scam somebody in this way. Number one, the scammer starts requesting 
password resets for the victim's account. So they have to know your email address, first of all, the email address that you're using with your Apple ID in particular. Second, they're going to use caller ID spoofing to appear to be Apple. I don't know if Apple still does this, but I, I remember that at one point, whenever you would buy a new iPhone and set it up from scratch, Apple would be the one contact that would be pre-installed by default, right? So you could call Apple for support. And so now all of these iPhones all throughout the world have a number, a phone number that's built into them that if you get a call from that number or apparently from that number, it's going to show that Apple is calling you. I'm not sure that's exactly true because the number that you would get in your contacts would be an 800 number, right? The number that I get when Apple calls me, so let's say if I'm contacting Apple Care for support, I go online and I put my phone number in and they say they're going to call me. And I get a number that's coming from Cork, Ireland, which is their main sort of switchboard in Europe. But it doesn't even say Apple. I just see the country code and the number, but it doesn't say Apple. It's not an 800 number. So I, I think this sort of spoofing is just putting a name, spoofing any kind of number. It's not spoofing the number for Apple that's in the contacts. It could be. There's a couple of different ways that they could go about this, right? One one thing is if you have a phone number that's like already in your phone, that's a known Apple phone number, they could pretend to be calling you from that number. So it may not actually be the number that Apple would really use if they were calling you. But as long as your phone thinks it's Apple because there's a contact with that number, then the caller ID would show that it was Apple calling you. And I think that might be what they're doing here. The other thing they could possibly do is even if you didn't have a contact for Apple in your phone, they could still use caller ID spoofing to appear to be an Apple phone number that if you Googled it, you would find out that that was an Apple phone number. In any case, so the next step is is they, they call you with a spoofed, you know, Apple phone number, apparently, and the scammer tells the victim that they're Apple and that there's suspicious activity on the account, which tracks because, you know, there have been some password resets that the bad guy has already done. The scammer then requests a password reset again for the victim's Apple ID, and the scammer then asks the victim for the code, claiming that it's to verify they're the real owner of the Apple ID, when in reality, of course, that's not the purpose of the codes, and the scammer is using that code to reset the victim's password. And what's interesting is this is not... This is getting past two-factor authentication because usually the, the second factor, the first, you've got your username, the first factor is your password, the second factor is this code, but the password has been wiped. So the only factor that counts now is this code, which allows that person to get into the account. Right, exactly. It basically bypasses the, the second factor and you no longer really have two-factor authentication at that point because now the bad guy has the only password for your account because they've just reset it. So it's kind of crazy how that works. Now you could change it back. You can still request another password reset. And this time, um, hopefully, as long as the other person hasn't kind of locked you out of, of, uh, of your account, um, you'll be able to reset it again and then keep them out. But it gets a little bit complicated here because now they may have actually added one of their devices to your Apple ID so it gets into a little bit of a sticky situation there. Okay, the, the key takeaway for me is that Apple will never call you unless you ask for a call. There may be situations when an Apple support person will call you back to follow up on a case, but unless you've opened a case with Apple, they're not going to call out of the blue. Your bank shouldn't be calling you out of the blue, your insurance company, no one should call you out of the blue for anything that involves 
you know, passwords, usernames, accounts, anything like that. Right. And the second takeaway is these codes are never, ever, ever something that you're supposed to share with somebody else. They are always something that's specifically intended for the owner of that account, the person who set up that account. Don't ever share these one-time codes with anybody because they could be using it to try to scam you. You know, every time I log into PayPal, I get a code and it always says, don't share this code with anyone. So it's at least they're very clear. Apple doesn't do that with the dialogue that displays on screen. They don't say don't share it with anyone. They're just expecting that you know that you're the person who requested it. Right. And that's something that Apple probably could be doing better. They could improve the messaging when those messages come in so that you know that this is not something you're supposed to share with anybody else. Okay, we have a story from the BBC that fake reviews are to be illegal under new rules. Now, this is in the UK. I'm pretty sure the EU is working on something similar. And I know that a couple of states in the US are doing this soon. Basically, they're saying that it is illegal to pay someone to write or host fake reviews. A competition watchdog will get new powers to fine firms up to 10% of their global turnover for bad business practices. They're, they're doing these big 10% of global turnover fines here now, and they haven't fined anyone that amount yet. I want to see how they collect it because that's an awful lot. But the point here is that there are just so many fake reviews. Some of them are malicious, like someone reviews a restaurant on Yelp because they don't want your restaurant to succeed. They want their restaurant to succeed. Some of them are to try and get you to buy stuff on Amazon. There are Facebook groups where lots of companies are posting about products they want reviewed. They'll refund you the cost of the product and they'll send you like 50 bucks or something. And this is so it shows as a verified purchase, right? You, you can still review on Amazon if you haven't purchased something, but that verified purchase makes it sound realistic. The biggest problem with this is how are they going to enforce this? How are they going to tell which reviews are fake? Yeah, that's exactly the problem. And, and there are some ways that you can algorithmically determine that some reviews might be fake or paid or things like that. Uh, where it gets a little bit um, gray is some of these reviews where, like you say, where somebody has actually been paid to review a product, people don't necessarily always disclose that right when in their review and if they are a fairly good writer and they're not just you know copy pasting something from one review to another if they're actually writing something unique for every review it could look like a legitimate review and people might not know that they were actually paid to write a positive review for a product. So it gets difficult in some cases, I think, to really determine whether something's a legit review or not. Well, the problem with Amazon reviews these days is some of them are so useless. You know, you get an email when you've purchased something and they ask you to review it. And so here I'm looking at an English edition of Marcel Proust's novel, In Search of Lost Time. And here's a five-star review. Good delivery and good value for money. And it's a verified purchase. It's not a fake review because, you know, the publisher's not going to pay people to review this. But the problem is they're asking you to review something and you have nothing to say. So you're just putting something in and that five stars means absolutely nothing because just because it was delivered on time, you know, I bought it as a present for my husband and I think he likes it. That kind of review, you see those more and more. I think Amazon should just remove that kind of review. 
Yeah. The other thing that I see a lot is eBay like reviews on Amazon, right? Where somebody is is saying, like you said, good shipping or whatever, and they're not actually reviewing the product at all. It's like they they got so used to writing reviews for sellers on eBay that now they're kind of in that weird mindset. And so instead of actually reviewing products, a lot of times people are reviewing the seller and that's not the purpose of reviews on Amazon. That's not how this works. You can separately review a seller, but usually when Amazon is prompting you for a review, they want to know how you liked the product. They want you to review the product, not the seller of the product. Well, Amazon doesn't care so much. Amazon wants to sell the product. They don't care whether you like it. And basically, the more reviews there are, the more people are likely to click on links to look at products because it's a combination of the number of stars and the number of reviews. In any case, Amazon, all these other companies are going to have to figure out a way to do this. We'll certainly talk about this in the future. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to talk about Josh's Weekend Maker Project. Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users since 1997, and our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected in 2022. Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection, Net Barrier for powerful inbound and outbound firewall security, Personal Backup will keep your important files safe from ransomware, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Monterey and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. When you're ready to buy, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intego.com. That's podcast.intego.com. And click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Intego Mac Podcast listeners. Intego, world-class protection and utility software for Mac users. Made by the Mac security experts. Okay, Josh was busy this weekend because he has a very old Mac. And remember when we started this episode, we talked about how there weren't security updates for macOS Big Sur and Catalina. And Josh has been blowing the trumpet on this now for a while that you you shouldn't be using a Mac if you can't update to the latest operating system. So he took a 15-year-old Mac and he put macOS Monterey on it and... Josh, I am in awe. Can you walk us through this? We're, we're not going to go into the technical details. A very long article uh, on the Mac security blog we'll link to in the show notes. So first of all, we should say that Apple has sort of cut off a minimum hardware requirement for every new version of macOS. And sometimes a couple of versions of macOS will come out in a row where they kind of keep the same system requirements. But in recent years, the past, I think, three versions of macOS have each cut off some additional hardware, uh, some you know, older machines that the previous version of macOS still supported. Now, my 15-year-old Mac, obviously, <laughs> that's way out of date. Um, 2007, uh, this was a mid-2007 iMac, and the most recent version of macOS that Apple still supports for this machine would be macOS El Capitan, which is uh, macOS 10.11. So this is pretty out of date. There's an interesting way that you can upgrade Macs 
without Apple's permission or approval, and that's using a third-party patcher. Now, these patchers have been around for several years. We actually have previously had a version of this article on the Mac Security blog that was updated for uh, Mojave and Catalina. And within the past couple of years, um, the, the person who was creating that patcher stopped working on that project. And so other people have sort of taken up where they left off. And so now you can do the same thing with Monterey as well. Now, essentially, the way that these patchers work, if you've ever heard of a Hackintosh, you know that uh, it's possible to, in some cases, run macOS on an Intel PC as long as it has similar hardware to a Mac. You know, if you're using similar co uh, components, you know, similar graphics card and processor and, you know, other things like that that are very similar to Apple's Intel Macs, then you may be able to run Mac OS on a PC. It's not always super easy to do, but one of the things that enables a Hackintosh to work is by taking some existing drivers from previous versions of Mac OS, maybe from Macs that Apple is no longer supporting, and bringing those drivers over to the latest version of Mac OS so that it broadens the amount of hardware that's supported. And the other thing is there's third-party drivers too that you can also add into the operating system manually to support a wider range of hardware. So how does this work with Apple's current security model? I thought you weren't able to change anything in Mac OS that it was like the entire system was locked down. Can you actually bring a new driver in that wasn't there? And does the Mac not freak out and display all sorts of security warnings? Well, this does get trickier over time. And that's why uh, the development of these patches is kind of moves on from one person or group to another over time. Basically, the, the way that this works is that, in, in part, you're modifying what's called the EFI boot portion of Mac OS. So EFI is Extensible Firmware Interface. And there's certain things that if you patch them in just the right way, it enables macOS to be able to boot up on an older system, older than it was intended to run on. Is this like you have to put things in a certain order? I remember back in System 7, you'd have to load extensions in a certain order sometime to avoid conflicts. Is it similar to that? Honestly, the process itself is really easy. The behind the scenes, yeah, there's a lot of technical stuff. But the actual process for getting this to work is surprisingly easy. There's literally just an app for that. It's a little more to it in terms of like actually getting this set up. Now, for my Mac in particular, it's the oldest model that's still supported. This is the one and only model that you actually have to upgrade the CPU, the central processing unit. I had to put a new processor in this particular Mac. So you had to actually open up the Mac and replace the processor, which is not that simple. Right. I did for this particular Mac model that was a requirement. So I have literally the oldest Mac that can run Mac OS Monterey today. Did you change anything else? Like, did you put an SSD in place of a hard drive? Did you put more RAM, things like that? I did, yeah. I, I think it's probably good idea if you're going to be modifying the hardware anyway again not a requirement for a lot of these upgrades but if you want to have as good of an experience as possible with the latest version of mac os on some really old hardware it's a good idea especially to at least re replace a spinning hard drive with an ssd a solid state drive um, because they're significantly faster and so your boot times are going to be better and a number of other things are just going to run a lot quicker and having more ram is that's another thing that's usually 
on some older Mac models, it's it's relatively easy to upgrade the RAM. Apple used to make that a much easier process. Now you're kind of stuck with whatever RAM you bought the machine with on some newer models. Another point is if this is 15 years old, it might have a hard drive that's not very large. You might actually be able to have an SD that's larger than the hard drive that was originally in the Mac. One thing I'm wondering, is this similar to jailbreaking a phone? Well, that's a good question. I would say that there's pretty significant differences. So I think a lot of people, when they want to jailbreak an iPhone, they're, they want to sort of open it up to additional features and functionality and apps that Apple won't allow. So the only way to sideload apps onto an iPhone, generally speaking, and there, I guess there are kind of other ways that you could sort of do this with web apps, but generally if you need an app that really embeds itself in the operating system to get full functionality. The only way to sideload an app like that is if you've jailbroken your iPhone. Now, the problem with jailbreaking that, you, first of all, jailbreaks work because they're exploiting a known vulnerability. So when you jailbreak an iPhone, you have to stay on an older version of iOS, generally speaking. And there may be some tweaks where you could kind of use this on a relatively recent version of iOS, but most of the time, you have to use an old version of iOS, which means you're not getting any security updates. So what's different here is you're running the latest version of macOS Monterey. You're getting all the security updates that Apple is offering to everybody who gets macOS Monterey. What happens when there's a new update to macOS? Do you have to go through this whole process again? The way that the current patcher system works is that you can install minor updates, which means you know not uh, jumping from Monterey to macOS 13 when that comes out, right? But just upgrading from one version of Monterey to another. They come out with a security update. You can install that security update, uh, reboot your Mac, and then there's a patcher that you have to run because it has to reinstall those drivers and then you reboot your Mac again. So it's it's actually a really simple process. You, of course, you still should back up all your files and things like that just in case. The patches now are pretty mature and they, they actually work quite well. People have been doing this for many generations of Mac OS. And so um, the whole process is very, very easy now to, to just repatch the operating system and continue using it like normal. Okay, you say it's easy, you say there's just an app, but you got 26 steps in your article here. On a scale of one to 10, what's the difficulty? Without having to change the CPU, which in your case is the only Mac where you had to do that. Right, okay, so assuming you're not gonna do any hardware upgrades, and by the way, another thing that we should mention about this is that some Macs as recent as 2015 are no longer supported. Uh, and you can't, you know, install macOS Monterey on some even 2015 Macs. So that's not terribly old. Right. Yours is a 15-year-old Mac, and you could have a 7-year-old Mac where you can't install Monterey. Exactly. So the newer the Mac is that you're trying to upgrade to Monterey, the less that you'll have to do in terms of, like, you know, hardware upgrades or things like that. You really don't need to you know, put a new SSD or a new RAM or anything like that in some of these newer Macs, because generally speaking, they're already running pretty well. The hardware is still new enough. You don't need a, a hardware upgrade. So getting back to your question, you wanted to know how, how hard is this on a scale of one to 10? So I would say with 10 being like, you, you need like a, a PhD, you know, to, to know, or, or extensive hands-on experience doing something like this. And a one being like, 
a toddler could do it, right? This is probably about a five, to be fair. Yes, it's a lot of steps. And yes, if you run into a snag, it helps if you are, you know, have some more expertise or technical mindedness or have somebody that you can call for help. However, I think for most people, if you're, if you're feel, if you feel like you're somewhat tech savvy, you can probably do this. I mean, the way that I wrote out these steps is uh, I'm, I'm trying to make this as easy for anyone to do who wants to do it as possible. So, so yeah, it's 26 steps, but I, I broke them down into like very small steps just so I could include like a screenshot with a lot of these sub steps to get kind of make it as easy as possible to see exactly what you need to click. This is what it's going to look like when you get there. Okay. I'm curious to know if any of our listeners want to try this. If you have an old Mac, it might be worth doing just for the fun of it. Oh, I remember when I was trying to set up a Hackintosh years ago, it was about five or six years ago, it was really problematic and I had to go to forums. And looking through your article, it does look a lot easier. You're choosing from some menus and you're clicking a couple of buttons. So it doesn't look that complicated. I don't even have an old enough Mac to try it, but we'd love to hear from any of the listeners who do try this podcast at intego.com. Until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to follow us in Apple Podcasts or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com.